Hello and welcome to the Vaccine Challenge. Our mission is to speed up the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine by bringing to light all of the supply chain and distribution challenges involved with this mega task and by connecting the various stakeholders that can benefit from working together. I'm Priyanka and we're in conversation with Dr. Peter Marks of the US FDA. The FDA needs no introduction, but still, for the uninitiated, FDA stands for Food and Drug Administration, which is the regulatory body in the United States that approves or rejects therapeutics and vaccines based on its efficacy and safety, amongst other features. It's no surprise then that the FDA has had a massive role to play in approving the COVID-19 vaccines at record speed. In this episode, I asked Dr. Marx about how this was possible, especially without cutting any corners, what review processes might change permanently at the FDA as a result of this, how does the FDA track adverse reactions like in the case of the Janssen vaccine recently with the blood clots, or even how the new COVID strains, for example the one in India at the moment, impacts the current vaccine strategy. For all this and more, let's jump right in. Hi there, Peter. It's so lovely to be chatting with you. Thanks so much for taking out the time to chat. I'd love a little bit of an introduction to yourself, your role at FDA, and also you coined the term Operation Warp Speed. What's the story behind that? So the the term Operation Warp Speed was never meant to be really a public term. It was uh, an internal name we gave to a program that was being used to try to expedite vaccine development by essentially condensing various phases of development, by expediting regulatory work and by manufacturing at risk while clinical development was ongoing. So it was really never intended to be a public facing term, but it ended up getting there when someone needed a name for this thing uh, later on in the project. It's just a very catchy name, I have to say. I can see why it caught on. So that's great. I mean, I think you should be naming all other task forces that get put in the future. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about your role uh, at the FDA, Peter? So I'm the director of the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. We are the part of FDA that, um, that handles complex biologic products such as vaccines, blood products, and cell tissue and gene therapies. Wonderful, got it. Now, I'm curious, how, how do you think the rollout has actually been going on under the two administrations? It's already such a complex problem. Then after that, you know, the transition of power and all of that, how do you think that's been working out? You know, I think the rollout has gone about as well as one could expect uh, with uh, developing a vaccine in under a year uh, and getting it out there. We now have three uh, vaccines under emergency use authorization in the United States, all of them roughly a year, year and a little bit uh, to get there. And to now have uh, uh, you know, 200 million or so people vaccinated, it, I think it's not as, uh, you know, it's not a small feat. Um, yes, there were speed bumps. There were things that could have clearly been done better um, in retrospect, but overall uh, things have uh, gone reasonably well. Got it. Now, obviously this is a global Problem, the pandemic has swept all countries. The FDA's role is to be the regulatory body for any drug and food decisions within the US. But how does the FDA collaborate with other regulatory agencies across the world? Yeah, so we, we take our, our regulatory role pretty seriously in terms of being a global lead in this area. And so we work closely with EMA, other leading regulators. And we also work closely with WHO. I think we totally acknowledge that if we don't globally get on top of this, we are not going to all be able to uh, enjoy life as previously. So even though we have the 
issue of making sure we have the United States population vaccinated against COVID-19, we need to make sure that the rest of the world can get there as well. And to, the, to that end, the leadership that we can provide at FDA to help facilitate uh, vaccine development globally and vaccine supply globally is, is clearly taken very seriously. Has the COVID situation or has COVID itself improved collaboration that happens with other agencies? Is, is the setup, is it is it continuing with the setup that existed pre-COVID or has that changed how deep the collaborations have been? Yeah, so what has happened over the course of this pandemic, and I do have to say it's probably accelerated more recently, has been closer collaboration between the various agencies in the United States. Now, even Throughout both administrations, there was a coming together of global regulators. There is this uh, you know, in international coalition of medicines regulatory agencies where um, that has really grown in importance during the pandemic and there's a lot of exchange that happens there. So that's one place. We've worked more closely with WHO. So globally, there's been more collaboration. And within the United States, we have had a coming together of the various regulatory and public health agencies like our Centers for Disease Control, where we're working more closely with them uh, to try to facilitate, you know, a, a essentially a seamless vaccine approval and rollout process. Gotcha. I'm curious, how does uh, the approach of the FDA change, you know, vis-a-vis working with other countries. So for example, um, I'm physically in India at the moment in a bunk bed actually, which has very much to do with how bad the situation, um, or the COVID situation is here. And there are multiple things here. I mean, obviously the population density and so on and so forth. But I believe that last week there was a lot of talk about uh, the embargo on vaccine uh, raw materials from the US, which actually has been lifted yesterday or a couple of days ago. Does the FDA have a role in those decisions? Uh, how exactly does that get done? So we, we have a role in making sure that the vaccines that are produced are safe um, and that they're well manufactured. We don't necessarily have anything to do with where they're directed after that. Um, our goal is to make sure that we facilitate production to the greatest extent possible, uh, to make sure that what is produced is made of high quality, and then it's for others uh, in the administration to decide where supply goes. You spoke a second ago about the collaboration that the FDA has within uh, other bodies within the U.S., uh, whether it's the CDC or even Operation Warp Speed now, right? Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what that looks like uh, and, again, how that's changed or what novel things have come out between that partnership as a result of COVID? Yeah, I think what, what has happened here is more regular dialogue that happens now on almost a weekly regular basis between the public health agencies. We are now week weekly meetings with uh, folks from the Centers for Disease Control and are related to um, what has, uh, was Operation Warp Speed and is now simply called the Operation <laughs> or the Coronavirus Task Force. And that is a lot, that means a lot. The other thing is there are personal relationships that have been developed so that we pick up the phone a lot more or Zoom or whatever uh, social platform that we're using um, to have these conversations so that things get resolved very much in real. Things used to kind of go off for a little while 
before they swear things get resolved in real time. Yeah. Can you maybe give us a flavor of uh, a couple of things that might have been discussed in the most recent meeting with the CDC, just to give us a sense of what happens behind closed doors? Things that I can I can talk about openly is that obviously we have very frank discussions about the adverse events that, are, that occur, what we think uh, risks are, what we think um, our best risk mitigation strategies are. Um, those are the kinds of things that we talk about. And, and I think we voice different opinions and uh, come to consensus. So I think it's working. The process is working very well. Let's talk a little bit about FDA's actual role itself, right, which is for approval, right? Now, there was obviously tremendous pressure from every side to approve the vaccines for COVID-19. How does the FDA tread the balance between speed, but obviously safety for the approval of these vaccines? Yeah, so um, first of all, just to make sure we're clear, the, uh, the vaccines in the United States have been made available under emergency use authorization, which is different than an approval, slightly different than in Europe, where there was a conditional approval of each of these vaccines that they have available here. Um, the emergency use authorization allow which would mean we granted a license to these vaccines. So there is a, a careful way of treading here whereby we do have to make sure that in this case, the vaccines are close to what we would have for a standard uh, approval or licensure, but the, we don't require some of the technical things that would normally be required, such as conformance lots and manufacturing, um, the same large uh, biologics license application, which you know is essentially keys off of the common technical document format. It's a much more streamlined process. So that's the balance here. But we've, we've tried to make sure that people were reassured that this, the effectiveness information for these vaccines is very similar to the effectiveness information that we would have for a normal licensed product. And although the safety information is somewhat sh shorter in duration of follow-up, we're using our post-market surveillance systems to keep track of that. And as you're aware, obviously, we've evaluated various safety signals as they've come up. Oh, got it. That's interesting. Can you talk about what the time duration or how much time gets saved for emergency authorization vis-a-vis -vis regular drugs that come into market or come, you know, get access into market uh, in a non-pandemic situation? That's right. So if, if we were dealing with this in, uh, in a priority review situation, which would be there was a, a medical product that was urgently needed because it was first in class or something. Our normal review timeline takes about eight months from submission to the time we would be required to have an approval under our user fee programs. So in this particular case, um, we were able to speed that up by many months um, now, some of that was done because we were in touch with the sponsors during the entire development program. And some of it was because uh, we uh, put an all hands on deck approach into reviewing the application. So it only took a few weeks after submission for us to bring something to an advisory committee meeting that was public, have that discussion, and then make a decision uh, to uh, authorize the vaccines for use. Do you think that as a result of this, there will be any changes in the review process within the FDA, even going forward? You know, it's hard to know. I do think that having a better understanding of um, development programs and the information that will be coming into us was very helpful. And perhaps that will be some change that will happen in the future. But I, I do have to also be honest that uh, we can't continue to work flat out 
um, constantly, um, uh, which is what some might like to see us do um, hmm. to get applications through uh, faster because we just simply can't burn our workforce out. <laughs> Yeah, I see what you mean. Well, let's talk about the new COVID variants. I think, you know, as last year was coming to a close, there was some sense of belief momentarily uh, throughout the world thinking, okay, the vaccines are here. You know, it's just a matter of time before uh, the population gets vaccinated that will, you know, that all of this will be behind us. But obviously, that's not how January was welcomed, right? There was the UK strain, uh, and then the Brazil strain and the India strain and all of that. With the new COVID variants coming in, does the vaccine strategy change? Or is there something that becomes different as a result of that? Well, I think I think now what we realize is we have to have a playbook so that we're ready to very rapidly pivot to uh, strain changes uh, if we need to. Uh, in the vaccine. We're hopeful that the current generation of vaccine will get us through this initial wave, but I think we're beginning to perhaps problem here that's somewhat like influenza, where over the course of time, we may have to switch the composition of our vaccines, either switch the vaccine entirely to a new strain or have bivalent, that is two component vaccines, We obviously don't want to switch any faster than we have to because um, that will slow down the vaccination process, but we have to be ready to with being prepared for new strains. So this is something that adds a level of uncertainty to this that we have to be prepared for. And um, we're going to keep our fingers crossed. These vaccines that have been will keep us going. Um, Obviously, there are some that may have to be changed sooner than others, depending on the actual construct of those vaccines. I guess this is a related question, right? With the vaccine rollout in full, full swing, how does the FDA actually keep track of possible adverse side effects of the vaccine? So we are collaborating with our partners at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and we have an overlapping set of a safety surveillance efforts. One, our passive safety reporting through the vaccine adverse event reporting system where people can report adverse events as they occur and doctors report them. The other is through an active safety surveillance system in which we use large databases, such as the one through our Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services for older individuals, and another through the Sentinel Vests system, which is a confederation of large healthcare databases, including claims-based databases and electronic health records, which lets us keep track of millions and millions of lives, um, literally over 100 million lives. Um, And by doing this, we're able to look for Uh, different signals. Right now, we're looking for 15 different adverse events of interest in the active safety surveillance system uh, so that we can get a sense of whether these things are happening. So it's clearly one of the most important things that makes up for the shorter duration of follow-up that we have uh, with the launch of these vaccines. That's something, again, as I said, we don't have in the the emergency use authorization that we might like to normally have uh, when we were doing a biologics license application. Right. That makes a whole bunch of sense. Uh, Let's make this tangible then. So obviously, recently, uh, the Janssen vaccine was being re-examined. The CDC recommended that there be a freeze on it, and then it was uh, reinstated a few days ago. Uh, Can you talk about what that process normally is like? So actually, the adverse event monitoring is a collaboration between uh, CDC and FDA. 
and we make these decisions together. So the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System is a collaboration of the two agencies. Um, and in this case, the decision was made collaboratively. Uh, it was uh, escalated to our parent uh, agency, the Health and Human Services, and a uh, decision was made. We knew that we needed to make a decision longer term very quickly once we had additional information. And that's why we rapidly gathered information. We put together an educational campaign. Uh, and ultimately, once we had a public airing at our advisory committee for uh, immunization practices of the Centers for Disease Control. So the decision is made by the CDC and FDA work together the Janssen vaccine to be used again. Um, and, and we did so collaboratively after hearing what we heard from the advisors, after looking over the data and feeling that the mitigation strategies that could be put in place uh, were adequate. That is, we wanted to make sure that the providers um, in the United States were adequately sensitized to what needed to be done to identify these adverse events and treat them appropriately. Now, given that COVID-related work has taken precedence over everything else for the FDA activities, and I know you mentioned earlier too, it was all hands on deck when it came out of vaccine emergency approval. How does the FDA triage other drugs waiting to be approved? Have there been any examples of where something else might have taken priority? It's a great question. So what has happened um, is that in general, we have just managed to make all our other goal dates, um, but certain meetings have had to be deprioritized. Certain housekeeping measures, um, uh, supplements uh, have been deprioritized. So although usually we're able to try to get things done ahead of schedule, um, right now, many other non-COVID things are just getting done right on schedule. Uh, and some meetings are being deprioritized entirely just because we have to focus on COVID-19. Ah, oh, that's just so rough. I can't even imagine, uh, you know, the kind of stress and work that goes behind the scenes. It's crazy. As, as a result of all of this, Peter, do you think that there's anything in the FDA that's, you know, there's going to be any permanent or lasting changes organization once the COVID nightmare is over? Well, I, I think that there's something that's going to change at FDA that's probably going to change the world round, which is that people are going to be working in their slippers and pajamas at homes more often. Uh, all kidding aside, I think what we have <laughs> learned is that our workforce works very well from home, that working from home allows us to draw upon a larger pool of highly qualified uh, individuals. And so I think we may see more work from home. I also think um, for, for, for practical purposes, we'll see people uh, really uh, you know, rising to the occasion when we need them, flexing up as need be uh, during these pandemics by that uh, work from home style. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that definitely does seem to be a trend across the board. Last question. I know that there are, you know, aside from the Pfizer, Moderna and Janssen vaccine uh, that's been granted emergency approval in the US, there's AstraZeneca, um, Sanofi and uh, Novavax spending, I believe. Are there any indications for when uh, those three might? Yeah, I, the best I can say is hopefully in the next few months. I can't say more than that because there's just <laughs> it's uncertainty and, and it's, it depends on the manufacturers themselves. And then final question, Peter, what needs to happen in the world uh, for, you to, for you to feel like, yes, the COVID nightmare is behind us? What is it that you miss from pre-COVID times that needs to happen for you to say, yeah, we're done with this? Well, I, I obviously think um, uh, it's going to be when we actually can come together and start traveling around to meetings and not have to worry 
uh, and panic about a lot of precautions when we do so. So I think it's going to mean that we're a ways away because it, for me, it's not that we are okay globally to start having global interchange again uh, in person. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I know that you have a lot of important work to do, Peter, so I'm not going to keep you uh, for too long, but thank you so much for taking out the time to chat with us uh, and giving us a little bit of a sneak peek of what goes behind closed doors. Thanks so much, and it was my great pleasure. Thank you, Peter. Really appreciate it. If you want to hear more from Dr. Marx, he's a speaker this year at the Disease Prevention and Control Summit, a two-day virtual event taking place on July 20th and 21st, focusing on some of the most important topics across the COVID-19 space, including vaccines, therapeutics, diagnostics, and health equity. I will also be moderating a panel on vaccine distribution, so make sure not to miss out. Links to register for free in the podcast description for this episode. That is it for today from us at the Vaccine Challenge. We continue to work towards our mission of bringing to light all of the supply chain and distribution challenges that can help speed up the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccines world over. If you're doing anything worthwhile in this space, have any suggestions of who you should talk to or any other ways that we can improve the podcast, please write to us at contactus at thevaccinechallenge.com. Until then, stay safe, stay responsible. This is us signing off from The Vaccine Challenge.